Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Pot of Gold Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's. Satisfy your craving for hand-breaded chicken and fresh-made salads. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today or order online at zaxby's.com forward slash podcast and tire rack the way tire buying should be. It wasn't going to take much to overshadow Notre Dame's upcoming Camping World Bowl matchup against Iowa State, but the news this week that the Irish and offensive coordinator Chip Long have parted ways rightfully took all the attention away from the bowl game. This week on the podcast, we've invited on someone who knows a little bit about being the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame under Brian Kelly. And that's Chuck Martin, who coached for the Irish from 2010 to 13 and the, is the current head coach of the MAC champion Miami of Ohio Redhawks. Chuck, thanks for joining us. Yes, yeah, great to be on. Chuck, I, I wanted to start here. You've obviously known Brian Kelly for a long time going back to Grand Valley State. I'm curious, how different was being his offensive coordinator versus being on his staff in other positions? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't tremendously different. Um Brian has his style that's been crazy successful at every stop he's ever been at. Um, he's a, he's a really, really good communicator. You, you kind of know what, he, what the marching orders are and you kind of know what he expects. He's not afraid to be upfront and, and be honest with you. So whether I've coached, I, you know, I've coached a secondary, I've been his defensive coordinator, I've, I've been his recruiting coordinator, I was his offensive coordinator. So I had four really different roles and all of them. I, the nice thing with him, there wasn't players. Like I always knew what he expected and kind of if you did what he expected. He was, he was a pretty hands off boss at the time. I think when I was on offense, he was obviously more hands on than when I was on defense, but it, there was still clear, very clear marching orders and you knew, you knew the plan and there was a very clear plan and this is where we're going with this group and this is what we expect. And, um, so. I always appreciate his communication. He was always direct. He was always straightforward. If you're if you're doing what he expected, he, he would let you alone and let you do your job. If you, you weren't doing what you expected, you always knew it, and he, you always knew the direction he wanted you to go. So um, that, that, that's kind of my take on my – and, again, I guess I've probably had as many roles as anybody that's ever coached from when I think about it. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting because you flipped right before the championship run in 2012. Um 
And and I believe you had told me you had run that offense back at Grand Valley after Brian left. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, obviously when I, when I had taken over for Brian as a head coach at Grand Valley in 2004, I switched from I was a defensive coordinator, and then I switched to offense um, that year. So I had started to run kind of his his what the things that had made us successful. We didn't just get to start from scratch. So yes, I had. But then obviously he evolved over time, and the game evolved. You know, and my six years apart from him, offenses had kind of changed. But I, again, my advantage I'd worked for him. Um, me and him have a very good relationship. I sat down and so when I'm when he was moving me back from DB coach offensive coordinator, we we sat down. We had a plan. You know, we're very similar. That we're both very direct. Uh, we both <laughs> want to be on the same page. Um, we, you know, so we sat down. Hey, where are we going with this? What do you want from me? What do you expect? We're gonna. You know, we're going to go with Golson, okay, how are we going to put this into play here? And So, it, to me, it's a, my his relationship professionally has always been very, very clean. I've never had an issue with explaining things to him or him explaining things to me, and he's always been my boss when I worked for him. So, it was always like I, I always gave him my piece when I thought it, and he said this is where we're going. And I was pretty good at taking orders and rolling. <laughs> when, when you – took the Miami job and had to hire your own offensive coordinator. What what qualities were important to you in that position? Um, communication and leadership because it, the X's and O's are always important, and, and, and but they're, they're ever evolving. How much has the game changed the last five years? How much has offense changed the last five to eight years? You know, it, it's ever-changing, and what's not now, it, it, you know, We'll be out, you know, defenses will catch up and then we'll go a different direction. Offense seems like they're always one step ahead of us on defense, but, um, so the things that don't change is you've got to be able to communicate because you're in charge of the whole offense and you're in charge of the whole offensive staff. So you have to be a great communicator and then you got to be a great people person because talking to your left tackle, you know, talking to Zach Martin, talking to, talking to Chris Watt talk is way different than talking to Sierra Wood or Theo Reddick or, or Tommy Reese or Everett Colson. So you've got to have the ability to be able to, to manage all these different personalities from all these different, and, and all linemen's personalities way different than a White House personnel, you know? And then they're from different backgrounds, and for, especially in Notre Dame, they're from crazy different parts of the world and the country. And, and But then you also have to deal with your staff. You're in charge of melting everything together. And I, I think one of the big reasons that Brian moved me from defense to offense was not because he thought I was God's gift to calling plays or God's gift to organizing things. I think he thought I would do a good job, but I think we needed at that time somebody to run our offense and manage our offense and get everybody on the same page, and he knew I was going to do that. And He knew that he was going to give me orders, and the orders were going to go right through the staff and right through the players and right through the GAs, so we're going to be on the same page, and there was going to be no gray error. So to me, when I heard that's what I'm looking for, both my coordinators, somebody that can deal with all the masses of all the people and all the personalities and get everybody pointing in one direction all the time, even though it's maybe not your opinion and maybe not your choice, but we're going this way and we're going to go this way and it's going to be really good. Chuck, you, you kind of mentioned how, how both you and Brian were, were very direct as coaches. I'm curious when you're, when you're adding coaches to your coaching staff, do you want to get a, a mix of different personality types and, and different approaches in coaching styles, or do you think it's it's good to definitely. have a lot of guys that are, are maybe similar? No, you, you definitely. You certainly want your, your guys in charge um, to have to have command in the room and have a personality and have a confidence about them. But then you, you got to blend from there. You, you can't have 10 yellers, but you can't have no yellers. You can't have, you can't have all really cerebral, calm guys, but you got to have cerebral, calm guys. So, 
you look, you start with your coordinators, and then you look at their personalities, and you always look at what you need at. And then you always look at your own strengths and weaknesses because the, the really good coaches, I think, understand that they do have weaknesses. And, and like on my staff, I'm always trying to fill in guys that I know that, Either this isn't a strength of mine, or this is just not something I even like to deal with. If I can, if I can find somebody really good at that that likes to deal with it, then that comes off my plate, and that allows me to be a better head coach. Or same thing, helping out your coordinators. If you know what your coordinator's strength is, then you fill in the rest of the staff around him with guys that maybe can fill in some of the cracks, and he can really focus on his strength and be really good at what he's doing. You mentioned Tommy earlier, and he certainly is another name's quarterbacks coach now. Is, is it surprising to you that he he uh, stepped into coaching so soon? And, and do you think that he could be the kind of guy that could could advance his career, become an offensive coordinator, and maybe even a head coach down the line? Yeah, definitely not surprising. He stepped into coaching. He was, you know, he was. You have all different types of players, but you, at every position, you have guys that really think the game like a coach, even though there's a player. And he was always one of those guys that, you know. When, when he was my starter, when he was my backup, there's still, I would have separate conversations with him just about what we're doing. And, and even though he was part of a battle for a job and all that, I still would say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Or he would give me input. Like he was, he was, you know, 90% player back then, but he was still 10% thinking and acting like a coach. And, and when you're a coach, you sense that and you have guys you lean on and you, you want. I got guys on my own team right now in Miami that I'll ask them, okay, what do you think about this? What do you think? This is kind of, I'm, I'm trying to decide which way to go. What do you, you know, you're living it, you're breathing it. So definitely not surprised when it's coaching. And then obviously, you know, he's done a really good job there, you know, with, with Ian. And, and I'm not, I put it so I'm not surprised that he won't, he'll end up being a head coach. I mean, he's going to be a coordinator, be a head coach. What's right now or in the near future, he's, he's, he's got that aptitude for the game and, and that feel for people. He's a people person. So uh, he, he's going to, I'm not surprised that he's not going to have anything but success in his career. Chuck, you know, uh, as soon as the news broke about Chip Long, there was people speculating about who should the next coordinator be, and there's a lot of sentiment for Tommy both ways. You know, there I think the prevailing sentiment is Tommy should be the offensive coordinator. I think the second most uh, sentiment is anybody but Tommy, and I think their worry is experience and not having called plays before or just not been a coordinator before. Um, what what is the challenge of being inexperienced as an offensive coordinator? I mean, is it the planning or is it the play calling? Uh, what would be yes. the hazard? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's everything. It's like anything else. Again, the boss man there's a pretty experienced offensive coordinator and play caller, you know. Um, and the offensive line coach, Coach Glenn's been with the boss man a lot. So, Again, if there's a scenario that makes sense for a younger, inexperienced guy, you know, now the head coach is a defensive guy, you know, and it's going to be, hey, we're going to cut this loose to a guy that doesn't have a lot of a lot of experience. But, um, you know, I don't I don't see that being the issue there at all. I think it comes down to Brian Kelly's belief that like he knows his football program. He, I, I've said this many times about BK, like nobody's perfect, right? But BK is about as good as anybody who's been around him. At some point, then okay. This isn't what's in the best of my program, and I'm going to change direction. He was, you know, he was pro style way back in the day, and then he went spread before anybody else went spread because he felt like that was the thing to do. And he's he's always been able to say, "This is our core beliefs. We're not going to change who we are, but we're not afraid to adapt with the times. We're not afraid to try to stay ahead of times." And he'll know what's best in his program. Like that decision to me doesn't come down to 
does Tommy Reese ready to be the offensive coordinator? Does he have enough experience? Is there more experienced guys out there? It comes down to what Brian Kelly thinks is best for Notre Dame football, knowing everything else that's involved, including himself. And if he thinks it's Tommy Reese, then it'll be the right call. It'll be Tommy Reese. If he thinks it, you know what I mean? So the debate between the fans and the paparazzi of is he experienced enough or he's not experienced enough, okay, well, you can, debate, you can debate that forever. You can certainly make a case he's not experienced enough. But experience for Notre Dame, experience for what Brian Kelly needs, you know. I heard a D-line coach one time in an interview back when I was a younger head coach at Grand Valley State. And I interviewed three guys. One was my GA, and one was two really good, successful coaches at the Division II level. And they interviewed great, and on paper they were way ahead of my guy, but my familiarity with him and then his familiarity not only with me but my systems and what I wanted to do is was trump the experience of somebody else. So it's, it's not if Tommy the best OC for UFC right now, maybe not. If Tommy the best OC for Notre Dame right now, BK will, better than anyone I know, have his pulse on what's the best and has made. He hasn't been as successful as many years in many different places without making these decisions right. And I'm not saying he makes it all right, but he gets them right in the end, and that's why he stays successful when other people can't. You're listening to the Pot of Gold podcast presented by Zaxby's. Before we hear more from Chuck Martin, let's take a short break. We know you like football, so do we. We're TireRack.com, and this is our version of a two-minute drill, except it's only 30 seconds. TireRack.com has an enormous selection of tires. Not sure which ones to buy? Use our tire decision guide to find the right tires for your vehicle and the way you drive. Then get them shipped fast and free on all orders over $50. Shipping is in as little as one day, free. TireRack.com ships to independent, recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Touchdown! Chuck, you kind of talked about it a little bit before. How how have you seen Brian Kelly evolve as a coach from early on in your days at Grand Valley State to, to now? I don't know how much you kind of get to track what what how he's changed in recent years since you've not been here, but how, what what makes him able to sort of evolve as a coach and have such staying power? Yeah, just like we said, just his ability to adapt and adjust and his willingness. Most people have success at some point become so absorbed in their success that they think their way is the only way and their method's the only way. And like I said, he's not changed his core beliefs of who he is and how he wants his programs to compete and how he wants his programs to win and how his, he wants his programs to fight and scratch and fly. That's never changed. But the 365 days to get there, he's always, and again, it's hard to be someplace for a long time, particularly in this profession, but how he's been able to maintain and sustain. He's at Grand Valley for 13 years. I know he had quick little runs at, at Central and Cincinnati, but those were different places. And how does he go and run different offenses and, and hire different coaches and, and, and have a down year every so often and then bounce right back and have a phenomenal year? His, his one, he's crazy smart, but his willingness not to say, hey, you better change for me. Sometimes he'll change for the group or he'll change for the coaches. Or he'll change for for the betterment and he's just he's crazy smart and he's always watching and he's always figuring out and his willingness to, to not just say, Hey, this worked in nineteen ninety four and this is the only way really that's why a lot of coaches don't last. Because they get their method and their methods sometimes whether it be kicks change or whether it be system changes, uh, recruiting or just you go to a different school and you gotta be different. And his ability he's changed at Notre Dame as you guys know as well as he changed your three and made me the offensive coordinator. And everybody thought he, I mean, most of you guys are like, you got to be half loony. You're going to year three, and we've had two okay years. You're going to make your DB coach the offensive coordinator. That's insane. And 12 wins later, it didn't look so insane. But 
what was best for it was a better offense coordinator than Chuck Marlowe probably was, but what he needed for his program right now, he knew, and it all blended together, and obviously it's worked out. And he's he's constantly willing to do that, but he's smart enough to do it, and he's smart enough to figure out what needs to get done. He just doesn't say, well, nothing needs to get changed here. We're just going to keep banging our head against the wall. He's never been that guy. He's been always innovative. He's always been ahead of the curve, and that's why he's lasted at such a high level for so long. It's, it's really amazing the run he's been on. Did your appreciation for that at all change with with what you've had to go through at Miami, being the head coach of a program being two and ten in your first season, and now obviously getting to a point where you guys won the conference? Yeah, I, I, I do, but I appreciate it before I, I said it back even before I got to Notre Dame, you know, was his 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 ability to see big picture and his his intelligence level and his his management of how to get a group of people heading in the right direction. And so I know someone I was at Grand Valley is a very young coach, you know, and then, you know, I, I lived it at Notre Dame. We made some drastic changes during my time there, you know, and I was part of them, you know, and then, and then how it all blended together. And it wasn't just about, you know, the whole thing about play calling and schematics. And it wasn't, it was about, he knew his staff and he knew to put puzzle pieces in a certain place to make his staff be the best, best staff to be. And, and so, but then, Six years here as a head coach, and you know I've been a head coach before for six years. But you know, getting it, getting this program back to where we want to get it, you appreciate it. And I don't know if I appreciate, but I just think of a lot of things I learned from them at different times. Sure, I didn't. I I've been around BK enough. I don't need to call and say, Coach, what do I do here? Like I would say, Hey, I could have the conversation with Brian Kelly. You know, me and Brian Kelly are different, so I don't just do what I think Brian Kelly would done. I could I could bounce things off him with him not even being in my office because I've been around the man for ten years and know exactly how he operates. Chuck, um, when when Tommy was going into the 2012 year, you mentioned that you your staff decided we're going to go with Everett Golson this year. How did he initially handle that? And then what was the 2012 year like for him? Because he was kind of like the uh, guy from the bullpen. Yeah, um, he handled it good. There's there's some things there that I'm not sure on this podcast that. <laughs> between me and Tommy Reese. Uh, it's a tough situation for Tommy. I know this, like, he went into that season ready to help Notre Dame football and, 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 again, was, you know, whenever you're making a decision on players, is it always fair? Is it always just? Is it always right? And I don't know that, I, I think Tommy had some frustrations with the decisions we were making that were justified, but being a professional and, 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 and us being honest with him and me being honest with him, he went into that season uh, with the idea that I'm going to do whatever I can to help this team win. And then as it turns out, I think he had a much bigger piece of the pie than he would have ever imagined, or maybe any of us would have ever imagined. And I always tell kids that when, whenever you don't get the results you want, or maybe whenever you don't get the, the, you know, you don't get the hire, you don't get the hire the first time, or you don't get the job, or you don't get the promotion, how you handle it, you handle it the right way, usually, usually it gets back to where you want to be. And, you know, he was just part of that magical season of anyone. You know, he's kind of one of the main stories. I could come out of bullpen four different times and, you know, and win major games for us out of the bullpen. It's it kind of, it kind of will go to down in the Notre Dame lore and the history of all the, all the great stories was the time he released bullpen appearances on a, you know, on a team that, you know, got to a national championship game. And obviously, if we won it, it would have definitely gone down in the lore. Chuck, obviously, you want to talk a little bit about uh, your team now at Miami. What, what are the keys to sort of sustaining the success that you guys were able to reach this season, and and uh, what what is what's the program outlook moving forward? Yeah, no, we've 
Again, we probably took over the worst team in the history of college football. The year before I got here, we scored nine offensive touchdowns in 12 games, which the way the state of college football is nowadays, teams score nine touchdowns and a half. And we, we scored nine touchdowns in a season, <laughs> and we were on a 16-game losing streak. And we we it, it was it was an absolute mess when we got here. So we had a long-term plan uh, to do it the right way. We thought it was going to take four or five years. We actually got it done in year three. You know, we went two wins, three wins, and that's, you know, we play a very tough non-league schedule. We played probably the toughest non-league schedule in the country this year with Ohio State, Iowa, and Cincinnati. But um, year three, we went six and two in the league. We started off on six. We won our last six when we got Gus Raglan, who now works for PK at Notre Dame. Uh, and since the point in time of year three, we've had the best record in the league over the last four years. It's not just this year. This is kind of the accumulation of the last four years of being knocked at their over conference co-champs one year. Last year, we were six and two. But Buffalo went seven and one, so we were one game short. And they beat us head to head. And this year, you know, we end up seven and two and win the MAC East, and then going to beat Central in the MAC championship game. So we're twenty three and eight the last four years in the MAC, which is two games clear of every other team in the MAC. People are just realizing it now because we're the MAC champs, and they're now they're looking into man, you turn around this year. I said, no, we turn around in year three. So we're, we're positioned. We're very young. We started two freshman quarterbacks, two true freshman guards. We played eight true freshmen total that were major impacts on our team. We played another six or seven redshirt freshmen. So this was a really young football team. So we are poised to be really good here. And again, the goal in our league is very balanced, but the goal is to fight for conference championships every year. We've been fighting for them for the last four years. We finally attained it this year. We, we're, we're positioned here. We only, we only lose one starter on offense. We only lose four stars on defense. So uh, we're, we're poised to be very good and be a MAC contender for years to come. You, you mentioned the Iowa-Cincinnati-Ohio State game, and I, I – Read your comments after the seventy-six to five Ohio State score, but is that the reality of being in the MAC these days? That you need to play those games to for the paycheck. I mean, is that part of what what yeah, it takes? Yeah, there's definitely. I think I think we might have overdone it this year. You know, um, <laughs> they're, they're, like I said, we we definitely need to play. You know, we had Notre Dame two years ago, and yeah, it's a great experience until the kickoff. You know, and then it's not as much fun. You know, and Ohio State being in this year, yeah, it's wonderful until until you kick the ball off and you can't tackle them, you can't block them, and you know, Trey Trey Young Trey Young's running around you and hit your quarterback in the head and knock him out of the game in the second quarter. And you, so the reality is, yes, we do. We do need we do need to do that. Um, this year maybe is a little bit you know overboard with at Iowa, at UC, you know, and, and at Ohio State and. So we're going to play one or two games that we're going to make some money, but we got to bounce it off with maybe other games that are a little more winnable. Otherwise, we're kind of putting the team. We overcame a lot of odds this year because, you know, going one and three non-league and demoralizing your team and uh, losing 76 to five and having, you know, we had, we had a lot of people not play the first couple weeks of conference because of our non-conference schedule and somehow found a way to win games. You know, we went into the Buffalo game with our quarterback head in practice, so there's a four of our top six old linemen weren't playing in the Buffalo game, and we found a way to beat Buffalo. So everybody goes through it. We probably went through it to a more major degree this year. I think in the future our schedules look a little more balanced where we're going to have some money involved there, but we're also going to have some, some games where we're very competitive and have opportunities to win. Chuck, you mentioned Gus Ragland, the former Miami uh, quarterback for you, is now on – uh, Notre Dame staff as an offensive analyst. What kind of asset do you think he is for Brian Kelly's program? Yeah, no, and again, another one they called me on him, and you know, uh, you know, what kind, you know, no coaching ability. You know, it's the same thing with Tom Prime as the OC. Like I said, that what I know about him, he's going to compete his tail off. <laughs> he's an unbelievable team guy, and 
and he'll find a way to, to help the organization. And I'm sure he's done a great job for him this year. But just just a constant competitor. He's one of the most competitive athletes I was I've ever coached. He was my first ever recruit at Miami. He was the, the short red haired kid, six foot quarterback that no one wanted and you know, we took a job in December and there's not a lot of recruits left and he had just led Moeller to the state title and we went there the first day and got him he was like I said, he was our first ever come in and we knew we lacked competitiveness and toughness and we were gonna try to start the program. I told him they said I said, everybody's gonna know what Miami football is gonna look like, you know, I don't know how good a player you're gonna be for me as you turned out to be a great player, but we're gonna build a thing on competitiveness and toughness and hard work and we're gonna start with you because that's who you are, and it, it worked out very good for us. I'm sure. I'm sure he's doing a great job for for the staff up there. Speaking of former quarterbacks, I want to circle back. Have you heard from Everett Golson in the past few <laughs> years? Uh, do you even know where he is? Uh, yeah, no. I, me and me and Everett stay in touch. I'm, I'm probably one of the few people on the planet that he actually talks to. <laughs> um, I have a very good relationship with Everett. I, I think. I wish the whole world knew Everett like I knew Everett, and and that's not the whole world's fault necessarily. That's Everett's a very closed person, not a very trusting person. But I have a very good relationship with him, and um, I, I don't talk. I probably talk about every six months, but I'll get a phone call every. So I'll check out him, but he, he usually, if he needs something, uh, he, he's usually uh, trying 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 to get my my at least what I think my input should be. You know, uh, even even when he was. Thinking about leaving Notre Dame, he was calling me, and I was trying to convince him that you don't want to leave Notre Dame. You know, you don't want to leave Notre Dame. Why would you be leaving a place you don't want to leave? You know, so. Uh, it, it, but again, he ever ever makes his own decisions. But he's he's an awesome person. Like I said, I wish the whole world knew him like I knew him because I have a totally, I think I have a different perspective on him than a lot of people do. Um, and uh, but I have a very good relationship. But I do I do stand in Last time I talked to him, he was up in Canada, still still mucking around in Canada, trying to trying to get back this way. And last one from me, I know that you don't have probably the opportunity to watch every Notre Dame game unless you have a great DVR, but um, and but the talent level and where the program was in 2012 and in 2018-2019, is it similar? Is it different? What do you see when you look at those two snapshots? Yeah, and again, I get to watch them a lot just because I, I mean, I don't watch any other college football, but I'm, like I said, I was a Notre Dame fan before I worked at Notre Dame, and I'll be a Notre Dame fan the rest of my life. That's so. That's the one team, and I get them on the bus on the way home. Or like they don't. We've been fourth. We usually don't play the same time, so I catch a lot of their games. But again, catching them in passing, and, and, and you know, that's a tough question for me. Uh, I feel like I don't know. I felt like when they played Clemson two years ago, they were a more complete team than maybe we were in 2012. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were. I don't know if. Either side of the ball was as good as our defense in 2012, but I think they were more more balanced and more complete than we were in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I probably can't answer that. Like okay. I don't watch them enough. But I just felt like going that Clemson game. I still feel like it wasn't for a couple of series in the second quarter. That's a pretty good football game. I really do. You know, I, I thought Notre Dame could stop Clemson. You know, and we did a lot that night, but. It's also maybe rose-colored Notre Dame fan glasses that I watch at PC. <laughs> so I'm back to being that guy, you know, where I will, I will just fire everything that's good with Notre Dame. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know. I feel like they're, they're more balanced. We were, you know, we were, you know, we had a freshman quarterback in 2012 and we had to play things pretty close to fast at times and rely on a defense and rely on a good running game, you know, but, um, it seems like they can do more and they seem like they're still really good on defense. So, uh, 
I would say they're at least as good, if not better. It's just hard for me to answer that, really, to be honest with you. I, I understand, and Clemson will be coming to Notre Dame Stadium next November 7th, so we'll get to see that game again. Will they, can their kid go pro after this year or no? He can't. He'll be there. <laughs> He'll still be ah. there one more year. Ah. That's the same because he's ready. That's true. All right, Chuck, that's all we got for you. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and good luck to your team against Louisiana in the Lending Tree Bowl. You're listening to the Pot of Gold Podcast presented by Zaxby's. True crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content. The Already Gone Podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello. Plus, better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the Degenerates. With the early signing period starting next Wednesday, I wanted to do some recruiting predictions, so we're joined by our ND Insider recruiting porter, Carter Carls. The first one I have for us is, which 2020 commit will start the most games in his Notre Dame career? And I'll start with you, Carter. Okay, disclaimer first. Is picking Alex Peitch, is, is that cheating? I don't think it's cheating. We can do a non-Alex Peitch addition if we want to if we were all going to go with Alex Pike. I'd say let's pick somebody that's not a special <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. yeah okay because otherwise it'd be him it but. was yeah I think it was it was almost a trick question because you would seem you would think that it's going to be him being the the lone scholarship long sniper on the team that he would have the most starts exactly and and so if I were to go non-Alex Pike, I'll go with Jordan Johnson I think he has the clearest path to playing time next year um, I, I could even envision him making one start in 2020 just in case there's an injury to Braden Lindsay. You know, he missed a few games this year. Um, if, if Javon McKinley doesn't come back, you know, I could just see a, a route where maybe he makes a start his freshman year and then maybe he's a three-year starter after that. I could totally see that. All right, what about you, Eric? I thought about Tyree and Jordan Johnson – um, I also wondered if they would be three and out kind of guys yep. if they were that good. I'm going to go with Tosh Baker. I think he'll redshirt next year, and then he'll be at least a three-year starter if he decides to stick around for a fourth year. But I think with Liam Meikenberg and Hainsey clearing out, I think he's the most talented of the young tackle prospects. So that's my vote. Uh, I'm going to go with a different receiver. I'm going to go with Xavier Watts. I think Ooh. he would be the guy – um, that would be the likeliest to maybe stay the longest. Um, I don't know that he's going to be like a, a an NFL guy three years or even four years out. Maybe he's he's a five year player. Um, but I, I just think that he is going to be able to find a role. Um, I think he's going to be versatile. Um, so I think they can they can line him up in multiple wide receiver spots. Um, so I will go with a little bit of a, a, a curveball there and go with Xavier Watts to have the most starts um, in his Notre Dame career. Next question I have is over under 250 rushing yards for Chris Tyree as a freshman. We'll start with you again, Carter. Uh, Tyree, 
I think he can have a big impact year one, but I'm going to go under just because uh, I lost some trust with the running back group this year. I think it'll continue to be a committee next year. It'll be hard to get that amount of production with with Tony Jones, Jafar Armstrong in the mix. I know Kyron Williams redshirted this year, so I think they'll probably involve him a little bit more in the running game. So I could see him having a Braden Lindsay type role, like more of that niche role where you know he's he's doing uh, like you know that just having some big plays. But I don't think he'll have enough uh, workload to make it over two fifty. All right, what about you, Eric? Um, I was I fell asleep on the couch last night and I got a phone call from Tom Lemming, and one of the things that he told me was how good Chris Tyree was, and he said if he's not starting next year, there's a problem. So <laughs> trying to mix reality with Tom Lemming's enthusiasm, and I'm going to go over. I do think he's a special talent, and there's no one on the roster like him. And if he doesn't get 250 yards next year then Notre Dame needs a new offensive coordinator again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's the mandate for the new offensive coordinator. He's got to get more than 250 yards for Chris Tyree. I mean, Brayden Lindsey got over 100 yards, and he's a wide receiver, and they barely used him. Right, right, yeah. Only one running back got over 250 this year. Right, yeah. So it's it's, – you can see it going either way because there's so many running back bodies there um, that they could – he might not have a lot of opportunities. But I will go over um, as well – but he's I'm, the fast one. Right, he, he's yeah. the fastest. He is the most undersized, too, though. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little concerned about that. Um, and I, I honestly thought Kyron Williams would produce more as a freshman, and he wasn't able to do that. So um, maybe um, it's not easy to to be a, a freshman running back at Notre Dame and have a lot of success. But um, I'll go over just uh, um, kind of betting on his talent winning out there and finding ways to, to get on the field and getting some rushing yards. Next one I have for us is which defensive line commit will record a sack first? Riley Mills, Jordan Botello, Aiden Kiana Ina. Did I say that right? Yep, you did. And Alexander Ahrensberger. Which one you got, Carter? Jordan Botello, uh, I think he's going to be the best defensive lineman of that group. And I also feel like he, he may have the clearest path to the field early on with uh, Julian Aquara and Jameer Jones gone after this year. Um, I, I just feel like he's going to be uh, involved maybe in the rotation. I don't, I don't know if he'll redshirt or not. Um, I think maybe there's a potential he doesn't if he ends up being in the two deep. But um, I see him at the drop-in position, which is where Julian Aquara plays, and, and him and Jones are gone. So I think he has a pretty good path to the field. What about you, Eric? I'm going to go with Riley Mills. I think that he is going to um, – play next year and maybe as much or more than Botello I think Botello long term is the better player but he's a linebacker now and I think they'll probably do what they did with Isaiah Foskey play him four games get his feet wet let him block a punt right and, uh, <laughs> but but Mills I think is sneaky sneaky good inside I mean he's been a defensive end so he right. knows how to rush the passer and I think there's some opportunity at the interior even those guys are ascending there's not, you know, Jerry Tillery sitting in front of him. Right. So mm-hmm. Mills is my guy. Yeah, I'm going to go with Batello as well. Just I, I don't know that I, I like any of their paths to to getting one necessarily as a freshman. Um, so we're probably talking about sophomore year here in terms of getting a sack. Um, so I'll go with Batello just because I think he's probably the best player of the group. Um, I do think with Riley Mills, 
Um, I do both like both Myron and Jason Adamalola's future at the position. So yep. um, I, I think he's going to have um, – I, I think he could potentially beat out like a guy like – hunter spears but even howard cross i think notre dame likes a lot too so um i think uh there's gonna be a little bit of log jam at pretty much every defensive line position uh for notre dame in the coming years which is a good problem to have so i'll just uh go with jordan batello and and trust that carter is right on this one (laughs) all right next one is higher number as a freshman michael mayer's catches or jordan batello's tackles man this one's hard for me (laughs) um i'm gonna go with michael mayer um, I, I personally thought that if Cole Komet left early for the draft, there's a high chance that Michael Mayer would start in year one. I, I think he's that good. I think he's got All-American potential, first-round potential, all of that. And I don't know how you keep a guy like that off the field, even if Cole Komet comes back. Notre Dame likes to involve a lot of their tight ends. Tommy Tremble had 15 catches this year, so – I think Mayer gets in, uh, you know, that, that 10 catch, 15 catch range maybe if uh, if Cole Komet comes back. All right, what about you, Eric? Well, I'm going to maybe contradict myself if I pick Batello because I thought they could redshirt him. <laughs> well, I think he'd be still, really good on special myself. teams. Yeah. yeah, I think he'd be really good on special teams. Tremble didn't get any action really as a freshman, and he mm-hmm. had 15 this year as a sophomore. I just think with Komet around, the opportunities aren't going to be as much. I think, the, I mean, the film is incredible of this kid, but with Komet still there, I'm going to go with Botello, and I can't tell you how my math. I'm not going to show my work on my math. <laughs> I'm just giving you the answer. Uh, you're just counting on blowouts. That's kind of what I'm going with. I think yeah. I think you'll have a chance to play teams. play yeah play on special teams, play late in games to get those tackles. Whereas Mayer, even. If you were to play late in games, they're not necessarily going to be throwing the ball. But like you mentioned, I think he's probably good enough to potentially play. But um, they're pretty deep at tight end right now, and so yeah. it's not it's not like um, obviously I don't see him as a similar type of player as Tommy Tremble. Um, yeah. But I I think that um, both those guys are going to get catches. I think even Brock Wright, they know that they can rely on him. I don't know if mm. Michael Mayer can play a fullback role like Brock Wright has, and gets, <laughs> that's how Brock Wright's been used a lot. So. Um, I think uh, I'll, I'll opt with Jordan Botello on that one. Um, but I obviously think both of those guys have bright careers. I just don't know that they're going to have huge impacts as freshmen. Next one is who will start a game at cornerback first, Caleb Offord, Layden Bartleson, Landon Bartleson, or Clarence Lewis? Well, I project Clarence Lewis as a boundary cornerback, and I feel like that position will have more opportunities with – uh, I mean, really, you're competing with Cam Hart possibly next year. So I think Clarence Lewis of, of this cornerback group right now is probably the most fluid athlete. I like him more than Caleb Offord. And then I project um, uh, Landon Bartleson as a field cornerback. So I, I like Clarence Lewis to, to maybe sneak his way on the field uh, earlier than the other two guys. All right, what about you, Eric? I'm. I have to admit, this is a big guess. And I'm just going to go with the guy I think is the best athlete. So I'll go with Bartleson. All right. I I went with Clarence Lewis. I actually did some film study on all, I think a couple of these guys. Of course you did. Um, well, it, it was back in the summer, I think, uh, when I was doing it. Um, and I liked Clarence Lewis the most, so I I just decided to opt with him. Just um, there's a lot of uncertainty with uh, with the cornerback future um, at Notre Dame, and um, I think all these guys will have chances to get on the field earlier in their career, um, even though maybe they're not 
the sort of elite guys that are in this class, but I think that these might be the guys we are talking about the most early on in their careers just because of the opportunities that they could have at cornerback. All right, one more prop bet for us. Which 2020 commit will be the highest NFL draft pick? This is another one I've gone back and forth with. Um, I'm going to go with Tosh Baker, uh, Eric's guy, just because I think – I think he has the highest ceiling of any of these commits. I think the highest floor is Michael Mayer. I think that he, I mean, I think there's a good chance he could be a first rounder, but I think Tosh Baker's got the potential of being, you know, a top 10 type pick. Um, he's a basketball star. He's He's got all the tools. Uh, and like Eric said, I think he's going to redshirt year one. Um, and then if he becomes three-year, four-year starter, just with Notre Dame's pipeline of, of offensive linemen, left tackles that can be first-rounders, I think Tosh Baker kind of embodies that. What about you, Eric? I'm going to go with Baker, too. The NFL really values left tackles. He's going to mm-hmm. be an athletic left tackle. Right. Um, I think Botello has some potential there. Just kind of interesting to see what he turns into. Um and, and running backs are undervalued. You right. know, they go later even if, in the draft. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're really, really good, it's and, hard to go high. And it seems like, I mean, when you think about Chase Claypool that's not even in the picture for any of these All-American teams, there's crazy amount of wide receivers right. out there. Yeah. So that's why Baker's my guy. Yeah, well, we're going to sweep with Tosh Baker there. I really like Tosh's upside, and um, I think he has a chance to be really special. And so – um, I, I went with Tosh Baker as well. I don't know that I need to say much more than what you guys have already said. Because <laughs> we said it well. <laughs> All right. All right uh, now i got a few more questions I thought we could ask uh, uh, Carter just about recruiting with, with the early signing period coming up next week. Um, and the first question I have is actually one that was submitted to us from Justin at The Real Putnam. Are we done recruiting for 2020? And I don't know if he, he means he he's recruiting someone or uh, um, no. But uh, so is Notre Dame done recruiting for 2020? And is Notre Dame looking uh, to fill out any spots with transfers? What are your thoughts on that? Well, they they already do have one spot for a transfer in Isaiah Pryor out of Ohio State, the right. safety, and really the only guy that is 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 on the radar right now is Ramon Henderson. Uh, they had three coaches stop by his house uh, last week, and then. Terry Joseph, the defensive pass game coordinator, had an in-home visit with him on Tuesday of this week. And so uh, he's been kind of the guy ever since he, he visited for the Virginia game in September that Notre Dame's been on. They've had 17 commits since July 5th, so not a lot of movement in this class. It's really been all about Henderson. And sure, they've, they've recruited some other guys like Jalen McMillan, but uh, I, I don't expect them to land a guy like that. If they were to land anyone else, there'd have to be some movement after the early signing period, and there'd maybe be some poaching done. All right. I do have a question about that following up on the transfer. I've been advocating for them to look at the cornerback market for a grad transfer. Now, if they're going to sign Henderson, I don't know what that'll do to the numbers, uh, but I'm just curious of your thoughts. Now, now again, sometimes yeah. it doesn't materialize until yeah. January. Yeah, nothing really has materialized at that point. I mean, I, I looked this morning, Michigan receiver Tariq Black is in the transfer portal, so you, yeah. you kind of never and know. 11 Stanford players. Yeah, 11 <laughs> Stanford players. So this is something that they're going to be looking at over the next couple months, I'm sure, uh, of, of you know, who who's in the transfer portal. Is there a guy that's good enough? Um, 
I know they've they've liked what they've seen from Cam Harton practices. KJ Wallace has has done a, a a nice job. They seem to have some faith in him. So uh, maybe they like the younger guys already on campus. But uh, yeah, I, I'm certainly with you there. I think a grad transfer at that position might be needed. Their could their be. grad transfer could be Sean Crawford staying for a sixth year. That could almost be their grad transfer addition. True. Certainly you probably could like to add another one in addition to that, but well, yeah, and somebody that's maybe a physical corner right. because when you think of are you going to play Crawford and Bracy together? Right, that's a very yeah. small cornerback yeah. duo. Yeah. All right, uh obviously the big news this week Carter Shiplong's departure as the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. What do you think the recruiting impact of, of, of that is for Notre Dame and, and the recruits they currently have, and maybe even beyond the current current guys committed to the class? Well, in the short, short term, there, there really isn't a huge effect. Uh, every offensive commit that I've talked to, their families, they're all on board. Look, you, you don't commit to Notre Dame typically for one coach or one you know position coach. It's usually for a lot of other reasons. Now, in the long term, certainly it does have an effect. I think who they end up hiring uh, either as a tight ends coach or an offensive coordinator will have a big effect on, uh, you know, the kind of guys they've get. They've chip long did a really good job recruiting at tight end. These, these next couple classes, Michael Mayer, we've talked about him. Kane Barong's projected to be maybe the best uh, tight end in the 2021 class. And then certainly Kevin Bauman in the 2020 class is also a uh, pretty stout. So, uh, th- they're going to need a guy to continue that success, you know, tight end you. And, um, and so that hire will, will definitely have a big impact. Yeah. My opinion is that as long as you're interested in recruiting, you can recruit tight ends and offensive linemen another day. I think they, they, yeah. the school kind of recruits itself when it comes to, when it comes to those positions. Um, the, after these guys sign, there'll be a number of these guys enrolling early. Can you kind of rattle off who's going to enroll early for another day? Yeah. The guys I've confirmed, uh, two receivers, Jay Brunell, Xavier Watts, uh, the defensive lineman Riley Mills, Alexander Ehrensberger out of Germany, and then Jordan Botello out of Hawaii, uh, and then uh, the quarterback Drew Pine, and then the guy that he's kind of confirmed to me but seems somewhat on the fence is Landon Bartleson, the cornerback out of Kentucky, so I'm, I'm still checking on that one. <laughs> okay. Well, if he's enrolling early, then I have a chance with my cornerback <laughs> yeah, that's prediction. right. There you go. Um, and then last one I have for you, are there any guys that are maybe dealing with injuries that we should sort of keep an eye on, whether it's the guys that are enrolling early and be here on campus in January or, or some of the other commits in this class that maybe dealt with some stuff towards the end of their football seasons? Well, Drew Pine missed his uh, playoff game this week, but uh, the reporting done on that was by by the local guys there. Um, seem to be non-serious, you know, nothing that's going to take him uh, out too long. Uh, and then the one that I uh, uncovered this week, uh, Jay Brunell, the wide receiver, he had a grade two separated shoulder, his right shoulder, uh, a few weeks ago. He's expected to be back before he gets on campus in mid-January, but it might it might take him a little bit to, to get back adjusted. You know, when you separate your shoulder and, and you're out that long, it takes, takes a little bit to build back that strength up, build back mobility. He, he didn't require surgery, so nothing too crazy, but uh, might, might have a, a slow start that first month or two. All right, Carter, that's all we got for you. Hopefully – it's not too busy of a stretch here before <laughs> the early signing period and uh, everything goes smoothly for you and you don't have any major headaches. Yes, sir. Let's hope. <laughs>
All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys, are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Principal Vernon at Shane0607. Why was departing with Chip Long right now the best decision as opposed to after the bowl game? Sort of felt like Chip Long and Notre Dame got to the point where they couldn't stand each other any longer. Well, I think that there was honesty and transparency with the recruits. I think you should have done that. If, right. if you were trying to trick them and say, hey, everything's fine, and then as soon as the signing period was done and say, hey, we're going in a different direction, I think it would cause some bad feelings. This way, Brian Kelly already had these in-home visits scheduled, so he was talking to the parents and the kids about the new direction. Right. And and that way you can kind of move in that direction for your bowl game. Um and I think that's a positive thing, too. And honestly, if the situation had become toxic, which I'm not sure it got to that point, but then then you need to move on right then. What's the right. point of keeping somebody around? Yeah, I, I think the the gray area there is that Chip Long doesn't have like a job right now, or at least that publicly that we know of. Uh, usually, I mean, this could have they could have mutually parted ways, and he have already lined up another job, and it would have just seemed like he took another job somewhere else. Um, but that didn't happen. It's just sort of a, a little bit of a strange timeline when it comes to that. Um, so I think that's where people are like, well, this is kind of strange. But I, I think I, I don't worry too much about him leaving before the bowl game and how that necessarily impacts the team and stuff like that. But um, I, I think that um, it, it gives Notre Dame a chance to go ahead and evaluate who they want to, to, to hire as the offensive coordinator. And so it also gives Chip Long freedom to do whatever he wants in terms of looking for his next job it's a potentially larger pool too now than it would be after the bowl game there's a lot of coaches assistant coaches offensive coordinators that are taking new jobs with new head coaching positions right. so if you i mean there's still going to be good people out there but you would be reducing that pool sure. a little bit next question is from jacob at jacob koselke what are the chances kelly gives tommy reese the keys to the offense for the bowl game as a tryout in terms of, I think just play being, being the play caller in the bowl yeah. game would be my guess. I mean, whether or not he's named an interim offensive coordinator or not, I don't know that is that I would, big of a deal. But yeah, who's you calling know, the plays? I, yeah, yeah. I would say we're probably going to find out the answer for sure tomorrow. I would right, think. that's what I'm, I'm kind of. <laughs> Brian Kelly's supposed to speak to us on Saturday, so we don't really know exactly what he's going I to mean, say. I mean, if he's if he's going to promote Tommy, and and that's going to be the long term thing, mm -hmm. then. I would say I could see him doing some of that in the bowl game with Brian Kelly having his foot on the imaginary brake like in the the um, student driver cars. Sure. Well, so, fortunately, those aren't imaginary brakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the second <laughs> brake in the student driver car. So he could have his foot on that brake. Um, so I could see that happening. I'm not sure, and this is where we need to kind of drill down tomorrow is – if Tommy Reese does become the offensive coordinator, is he going to be the play caller his first year? Or is it going to go back right. to Brian Kelly? Right. So I think that's a big question. Um, from the standpoint that if Brian Kelly takes it back over, one of the things he felt in his makeover that was such a big deal was him being able to spend as much time with the defense as he did with the offense, or it's con certainly considerably more time. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic. 
One more chip long question that, that a number of people uh, asked similar versions of. Uh, the first one's from, or the, one of them was from the dude abides at Slump Buster 1978, um, at Rick Hatton and at the Bronx Daily asked similar questions. He, they just want to know who are the possible replacements for Chip Long and would Kelly really promote Tommy Reese, who's never called plays before? You know, I haven't looked into a lot of outside candidates because I'm pretty certain that it's going to be an inside candidate. That's probably something I'll get to this weekend mm-hmm. and looking at. I want to hear what Kelly has to say first. If he says he's going outside, then I'll have that list on our next podcast. <laughs> but I don't want to, you know, I, I think it's kind of a waste of my time to – to kind of go that now, I th- I know people that I think would be good. Go get LSU's offensive coordinator because <laughs> uh, he's really good. Back at the Brinks truck, yeah, for that. yeah, and bring Joe Burrows with him if he has another <laughs> year of eligibility. But um, that's that's my thought on that right now. I'm fairly certain. I also think it's going to be really interesting, and it's going to have to be an outside hire who is going to be the new tight ends coach, or if they reconfigure right. the offensive staff a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big hire i think that's a very important hire sure and i wouldn't rule out a familiar name there all right well we will wait to see what happens with that and we'll move on to some other questions the next question is from christian bogan at c underscore bogan 1989 i feel like most of the inconsistencies with the offense began with the o-line how should nd address this issue find a different o-line coach have jeff quinn coach differently or find someone on staff to swap responsibilities with quinn etc well, uh, you know, there. I have a couple thoughts on this. One is they were a good pass-blocking team, at least in the bottom line. I know that Tyler tracked pressures because he did film studies every week, mm-hmm. and Book wasn't sitting back there making a sandwich. Um, <laughs> but no, they, were, they were better this year than they were yeah, last year in yeah. terms of pressures for the entire season. Okay, so there's that, and there's also no Power 5 team at fewer or less sack yardage the Notre Dame did. They were tied for first with Boston College. So there's something to be said for that part of it. Now the run blocking part of it, you got to get to the bottom of why that wasn't better. And I I think not having an NFL type back as an option hurt them. But I also think they they could have been better. And so what are the solutions? He kind of gave us multiple choice. I think if you hire the right tight end coach that has some offensive line experience, you can kind of split those positions a little bit more where they're all kind of keeping an eye on things. But I, you know, just from what I understand, I do think the one thing that maybe Jeff doesn't drill down on as much as Harry did, and I think it's necessary to do it, is maybe be a little bit more technique driven Mm -hmm. so i would say that's a conversation brian kelly needs to have with jeff quinn yeah to me the the pass protection is is obviously crucial because that was what ended up being notre dame's most important part of its offense this season um and sometimes predictable that they were going to have to pass the ball a lot and the fact that they were able to protect still in those situations was impressive and also in my opinion it's tougher to when you have to replace starting offensive linemen like they did having to replace their entire right side, I think it's tougher to get those guys to be good in pass protection versus run blocking. Obviously, that hasn't hasn't necessarily been the case. It seems like there's 
Um, Trevor Rulon and Josh Lugg have probably done a better job at pass blocking than run blocking, even though the the runs the running st- statistics did increase in the, the games that both those guys started for the final four games of the season, um, which could be related to the opponents more more or less to, uh, than just what they were doing and, and maybe obviously designed they were using the Braden Lindsay more and getting those rushing yards um, in those games uh, uh, more often too. So I, I think. Jeff Quinn needs to, and I think there's value in Jeff Quinn still being here and knowing what the weaknesses in the the current offensive line is. I, I don't think, I, I think the issues that are here aren't, aren't things that Jeff Quinn isn't aware of. I don't think they're they're not having success because Jeff Quinn doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I just think that they're they're struggling to get to the point where they can have a successful running game, and and maybe a new offensive coordinator helps with that, and maybe um, the play calling in the running game. To me, they run so many different types of running plays, and so I'm curious if you're not as good at doing that because you're trying to do so many different things, and maybe when you have a team that isn't necessarily built on an offensive line that is a good running blocking team that maybe you're asking them to do too many things, and so maybe they narrow that down with a new offensive coordinator or find things that they're better at doing in terms of run blocking. But certainly there's room for improvement, but I think Jeff Quinn needs to find – the the weaknesses address those i think also another year in the weight room for some of those guys i think jared patterson especially needs to be stronger than he was this year and i think that'll help him out tremendously at the center position um and so i think that uh um i think there's there's still reason even though many people don't want to be i think there's still reason to be optimistic that this offensive line can be better next year if jeff quinn is still the offensive line coach the one thing too i think that's a great point about how the offensive coordinator and the offensive line coach meshed I didn't get the sense that Quinn and Long were ever as in sync as Harry and and Chip Long sure but you cannot deny what Jeff Quinn does on the recruiting trail I know that you said offensive lineman and tight end kind of but I mean he's he's getting some incredible kids lined up and bringing in some incredible talent so I think if you can fix it rather than ditch it i think that's the way to go sure all right next question is from baba ganoush at plact underscore itf db in bowl prep does the coaching staff use the perceived apathy regarding this matchup from outside programs to motivate the team or to point out how motivated iowa state will be considering this will be arguably the biggest game in their history brian kelly already has a mantra and he's been saying it we play to the standard and that's kind of been the thing ever since they lost to Michigan. So they're not going to make it specific, tailored for Iowa State, that people don't respect us for playing in a bowl. People don't want to watch you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> people don't want to watch a bowl that starts with the word camping. You know, they're just going to say, let's play to the standard. We've been doing that all through November. And they did a really good job of them. I mean, they blew out teams that maybe some years they would have overlooked a little bit. So. I think it's it's working, and Brian Kelly will feel like it will work in good weather in Florida. What's one of the biggest cliches that players always say when they when they're, they're talking about the opponents playing against Notre Dame? Nameless, faceless opponents. No, that's one. The one I'm thinking of is we know this is the this is the biggest game for the other team. Everyone, uh, players always say, "Yeah, this is so and so Super Bowl playing against Notre Dame." And, yeah. Um, I feel like so the concept that this might be Iowa State's biggest game ever. Um, I don't think that's going to change the the perspective for any of these players because they understand that there's a lot a lot of times when people are playing against Notre Dame that that programs are are very motivated to want to to try to beat Notre Dame. So um, I, I don't think that's going to to change the way that Notre Dame looks at this game. 
the cliche in the Charlie Weiss era was, we just want to get on the bus. <laughs> All right. Well, do they always get on the bus? <laughs> no, not always. All right. Next one is from Irish Fan 10, Irish Fan 102. Do you think this logjam of 10 and 2 teams is an aberration, or is this the new norm due to weak out of conference scheduling? Are the top 15 teams so focused on playoffs or bust that this becomes the norm? I don't think it becomes a norm. I, I think in so many ways this is an outlier. And remember, for the people that want Notre Dame to join a conference, this Orange Bowl thing goes away one out of every three cycles. Right. It, it becomes a semifinal, so there's none of the Orange Bowl bursts there. You know, In the first five years of the playoff, it averaged one a year, and then all of a sudden you had four. Four team, one a year of ten and two teams that were left out this year. There's right. four, mm-hmm. so I, I just don't see it. There were a lot of top heavy leagues this year, yeah. And I think parity's going to cut. Pac-12 wasn't one of them, although they ended up with uh, one of the teams that was left out, <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I think you're going to go back to kind of the norm of a little bit more parity, and I don't think Notre Dame's going to have to think about this. Nor do I think Notre Dame necessarily is going to be ten and two next year if they make the improvements that they think they can in the offseason. Yeah, I think I'm interested in the concept of this and maybe tracking this moving forward to see if there are more than 10-2 and two teams moving forward because teams are scheduling and maybe realizing that, hey, it doesn't really – it matters less to lose – or it matters more to lose than it does to, to beat someone impressive sometimes. Um, so I think um, – I know a lot of people were wondering, well, why, why the heck did Oregon play – play Auburn this year if they wouldn't have played Auburn and won that game would they potentially be in the playoff this this season with just one loss um, and I think there's a decent argument for that but I think a lot of the scheduling happened so far down, down the line that it's it not necessarily going to be impacting the schedules now so it they're would be scheduling in the 23 right yeah yeah the teams that are so there, maybe there were ADs that that maybe anticipated this when the playoff was coming and, and said hey who care we don't but I think more teams said we need to beef up our out-of-conference schedule than vice versa and so I think any impact we would see in terms of how the schedule would um, relate to to this would be farther down the line than what we would see like this year and next year and and in the next couple of years even. Next question is from Papa underscore Moose. Talk about how most ND fans refuse to acknowledge a good season, good players, and a coaching staff. So it wasn't even a question. Just talk about it. How, does, does that wear on you that, that Notre Dame fans – seem to even when it's going well to not necessarily be satisfied no because i think kelly's kind of raised the bar with them Mm -hmm. you know i think he's with them that they want to compete for championships he's not saying you guys don't appreciate a 10 and 2 season so i think they're kind of taking his lead i mean there's a little bit more whining than i I anticipate I, i had a question in chat yesterday where a guy goes does jack swarbrick see you know, that that this thing is all kind of sliding down a hill. And I'm like, wait a second, they're on a five-game winning streak. They've won double-digit <laughs> games for the third year in a row. I, I don't. I didn't get the question, uh, so I was I was confused. So maybe it was a, a term. Maybe it was a slang term that I'm too old to understand. Maybe slide is a good thing. Like he's bad. Uh, so, uh, so, but I think they should. Uh, the 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 thing that drives me crazy is that people think that by joining a conference that's going to make fix everything that was wrong with this year right and i i think you better watch what you're wishing for yeah yeah it's it's so weird that 
the arguments changed so drastically based on one season. No one before the season would, I imagine, a vast majority of these people that are suggesting that Notre Dame should join a conference to get in the Orange Bowl, which who cares if it's the Orange Bowl? To me, the, the bowl system is people thinking of what their grandpa used to value. Who cares if it's the Orange Bowl or whatnot? Um, it, They're in the same state. <laughs> I, I just think that um, that the, the difference in the bowls doesn't really matter, but I think people are just getting – too wrapped up in that Virginia is getting to play in the Orange Bowl and Notre Dame deserves to be in that bowl and people are longing for the days when Notre Dame could play in a bowl one of the top bowl games when they had when way they worse didn't records deserve it. right yeah and so maybe maybe this is evening things out that uh, maybe Notre Dame was given some unfair advantages throughout the season or throughout the the years um, and uh, so so I think it's maybe leveling out a bit and um, obviously playing against Iowa State I think that's what's triggered a lot of this. Um, complaining. I think even if they were to play, te- like I think we've talked about this before, if they were going to play Texas in the Camping World Bowl, people wouldn't be that upset about it being the Camping World Bowl just because they were playing a program named Texas, right. even though Texas stinks this year. I think Iowa State is a more intriguing matchup than Texas is. Um, and I, I even our editor, I was trying to explain. I go, Iowa State's pretty good. I go, they they beat Texas. He's like. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that was his response to me. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll try not to pitch him on any Iowa State stories uh, when I'm down in uh, Orlando. So, um, yeah, I, I just think that uh, um, – I mean, I meant our editor, Alan. No, no, I, yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. I know what you meant. I'm sure the listeners had no idea. But um, I, I think that uh, it, it's just kind of funny how, how – to me, I feel like the, the like I mentioned, I, I don't think a lot of those people that are arguing this year that Notre Dame needs to join a conference to play in that bowl last year would have said that Notre Dame needs to join a conference when they got in the college football playoff. That right. no one was thinking about that. Um, so I think getting into the college football playoff is the most important part. I don't, I don't think getting into the Orange Bowl is a, is that important to change your entire concept of being an independent school. And they could have gotten in this year at eleven and one. Somebody asked me that in chat, and it would have been a real interesting debate with Oklahoma. That Georgia clouds it because Georgia beat them and Georgia was five. Right, but there may be the 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 sentiment among the committee had they beaten Michigan. Right, that Notre Dame was better now. Yeah, improved they as a win team. The, right, win the rematch. Yeah, because I think there's an argument that Georgia is probably a worse team now right. than they were when when Notre Dame played them, especially with guys being injured. All right, next question, a little less serious question from Derek Gerber at Gerbs Irish zero two. Imagine a Saturday you and Eric don't have to worry about writing a column on football and can kick back and relax a full day of football. Relax and watch a full day of football. What's your alcoholic drink of choice? You know, I'm not a big drinker. I I was much more of a connoisseur of these kind of things in my 20s. Um, You're more of a griller. Yeah, I'm more of a griller. It would be that would be the better question. What would I grill? Uh, but I would say just a good dark beer. Um, I I can't think of a, you know, I mean, if it were a mixed drink, I'd say surprise me. There's nothing, you know. I mean, I'm I'm pretty old. You're not gonna be sipping my ties like Brian Kelly. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna be sipping my ties. You know, my my brother-in-law had some Irish cream stuff when we were at Thanksgiving. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. And yeah. Try to, you know, I tried cranberry wine at Thanksgiving. Oh so, wow, okay. Yeah. So you know. But I would say dark beer is kind of my go-to. Yeah, yeah, I'm a dark beer guy as well. Porters and stouts, I, I prefer. If I'm drinking a light beer, it's usually Miller Lite. And um, so maybe we're make, begging, begging for some advertisements oh, okay, here. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, like have with our salads. And if I'm drinking a mixed drink, it usually has has whiskey in it. Usually a, a whiskey and diet of some sort or something like that. But yeah, I don't, I don't. 
I don't necessarily sit around and drink by myself watching football. I, when I'm with friends and stuff, and usually when I'm if I'm drinking watching football, it's usually on Sundays when I'm watching Bears games with with friends, um, and because uh, that's where I get to actually be a fan, um, as opposed to college football where you're just kind of kind of watching and analyzing and um, understanding what's going on uh, throughout the other the other programs. All right, last question we have is from frequent funny question asker at psully two two six. Name the top five current players who you'd want to assume the role of Santa Claus after the current Santa falls off the roof and dies? Well, Ruland played it at the uh, Kelly Cares thing. He was hilarious. He did not look like Santa, <laughs> and he scared 75% of the kids. Oh, no. <laughs> so I would probably take him off the list. I would say I didn't do a good job of researching this. Do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll research. I, I think um, I went with guys that I think would maybe embrace it best and, and have a have a fun time with it. Um, I think Myron Tangavailoa Mosa would would be, do a good job with it. Um, Khalid Kareem I think would would do a good job with it. I think he would em- embrace that. Jalen Elliott I think is a very outgoing guy and would be uh, interested in in uh, uh, being Santa. Um, and then Chris Fink I think Chris Fink has an inner like actor he's in, an in elf. Yeah. He's more of an elf than a Santa, but I think he would embrace the, the role of being Santa and, and uh, cheering up kids uh, really well. Cause I think he, he's got a lot of an, of an inner kid inside of him. So I think um, those are the guys I try to go with all different kinds of shapes and sizes of guys. Cause they don't want to just pick five offensive linemen. Cause I think that's obviously the, the easy way to go. The big jolly guys. But um, I, I think, uh, um, someone I didn't mention, maybe a little bit off the radar. I'd be interested to see John Dirksen as a as a as a Santa. He's a he's a kind of a quiet guy, um, but he uh, he does get rosy red cheeks. I've noticed too. So maybe maybe he would fit in as Santa. All right, did, you get, did I did I uh, uh, filibuster for long enough you for you? Filibustered a long <laughs> enough time for me. I'm going to go with Tommy Kramer. I know that. It's, oh yeah, Tommy would be good. Yeah, yeah. it's the but he kind of. He he would be really good. I think he's got the personality for him. He's got the figure for it. So in a good way. Um, I went with Phil. Yeah, we're not we're not judging figures here on this podcast. I went with Phil Jakovic because Phil allowed his kid, who was five, I believe, to get pickles and um, he got pickles and string cheese as part of his shopping with the player thing. Uh You know, every other kid had toys. Sure. This kid eventually got to the toy aisle, but he had string cheese and pickles in his cart. Those are the first two things he picked out. So Phil would be kind of a fun Santa. I went with Alohi Gilman just because everybody, you can't get enough of Alohi Gilman. He's got great stories. Sure. Talked about how he used to chase chickens around. Um, I'm going to go with Kurt Heinisch. Yeah, he was someone I considered as well. Kurt went to the daddy daughter dance with Mike Elson, oh, right. yeah, sweated yeah. all over his daughters. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, besides the sweat, he would be somebody that kids would. He's like a big kid. Yeah, he. It's funny because he's very gruff and intense uh, when he's serious and talking football. But he could yeah. also be a very, very uh, right. kid, kid that's good with the kids and stuff like that, and relate to kids and have fun with that. And then I would say Cole Komet. Cole was an elf at the Brian Kelly yep. shop with a kid thing, and I could see him being Santa. And he wouldn't need reindeer to deliver. He's fast enough to <laughs> deliver it on his own. So those are my guys. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. The Pot of Gold podcast is presented each week by Zaxby's. Satisfy your craving for hand-breaded chicken and fresh-made salads. 
Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today or order online at zaxby's.com forward slash podcast and Tire Rack, the way tire buying should be. We're hoping to record maybe one more podcast before the Camping World Bowl. Not sure if it'll be next week or maybe once I get down to Orlando, um, but we will keep you guys posted on that. Either way, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.